Now, as I was speaking yesterday about Gnosticism, as what is going to be the future world religion of the Antichrist, it might occur, why are we talking about that at a men's retreat? How will this help me, you might ask, be a better Catholic? Well, it, of course, there is an important uh, point in knowing, knowing thy enemy. As, as they say, we, we need to know who the enemy is and what his plans are. But I'm hoping also that seeing the malice of Satan and the blasphemy against God that he launches and wants to launch throughout the entire race, <clears throat> that the, entire, the entirety of the human race will be in blasphemous denial of the true God and its creator and its redeemer, that that will make you all the more determined to be faithful. And I'm hoping it will also make you not only determined to be faithful, but will make you more militant in opposing the evils. And if you understand what the evil is, that gives you the opportunity to recognize it and the power to oppose it. I pray that you will, because that is what God's will is right now for us to do, for sure, is to oppose this evil. And we oppose this evil most effectively when we adore him, when we adore the true God and his only begotten Son. By that adoration, we are, in fact, doing the most effective thing that we can do to oppose the evil that would blaspheme God. But anyway, I'll, I'll return to that again momentarily. What I've given you here, uh, a sheet entitled the, entitled, the Path to Disaster, actually looks upon the pagan, pagan, uh, manifestations in philosophy and mythology. As I mentioned before, paganism was kind of uh, bifurcated there. For the intellectuals, the well-educated, it became a kind of philosophy. And for those who were not, it became mythology. And that was their religion. And they believed myths. And you recall that the proponents of Gnosticism say that myth is actually superior to thought theology and philosophy. But what you have here on the page in front of you is a development of what I think corresponds to Gnostic philosophy. And I point out by, by telling you that Catholic, true Catholic scholastic philosophy, such as the 11th and thir to 13th centuries, believed that the world around us was real and that not only that, our minds were made in the image of God, and by grace even, Adam and Eve, our first parents, were created in the likeness of God. But that our intellects by nature are designed by God to know truth, to know the truth of this natural world, but ultimately to know the supreme truth, who is God himself. We are designed to know him, and we are designed to love him. We are designed to be loved by God, because as St. Paul says, he first loved us. Now, there was a rebellion against that Catholic understanding. 
in philosophy and in theology. A rebellion against the idea that the human mind was created by God to know truth. And of course, if you can destroy that idea, if you destroy that idea that the human mind was designed by God to know truth, then you destroy the image of God in man. And this is exactly what the devil wanted to do. He wanted to use so-called philosophy to accomplish that. And so in the 13th and 14th centuries, there arose a false philosophy called nominalism, which essentially said that the human mind cannot know truth, that the human mind can only know the appearances of things, that there's no really correspondence between the concepts in our mind and the reality outside the mind. There's no real connection there. The philosophers of the Catholic Church said that there is truth, and truth is the adequatio mentis ad rem. It's the correspondence of the mind to the thing. But the nominalists say there is no such correspondence. There is no such link between the concept in the mind and the reality of what's there. And this became the real problem in philosophy after that. Somehow trying to account for what's in the human mind, what our thoughts are, and what is the connection between the human mind and what is real. The problem became known as the epistemological problem. Knowing reality, whether the human mind can even know reality. And a very devout Catholic man named Descartes, who died in 1650, a mathematician, not a philosopher, tried his hand at philosophy to try to solve that problem. The epistemological problem, what can I know? What can I be sure I know? And how can I be sure I know it? And so he came up with the expression, cogito ergo sum. You're very familiar with that. I think, therefore I am. So he said, well, if we're going to be able to prove anything, the first thing we have to prove is my own, my own existence. I have to prove to myself that I exist. He said, let's go right to the ground level there. And so he said, well, I think, therefore I am. So he actually had to make a logical process to prove his own existence to himself as a starting point. But then he had to make a jump between his mind, his own thinking, and reality. This was always the, <clears throat> the leap of faith, so to speak. Uh, that the nominalist said could not be bridged by, by intelligence. But Descartes tried to bridge that gap, and this is how he did it. He said, in my mind now, I have an innate idea of God. And because of my inborn idea of God that just comes with my mind, I know that God would not deceive me. And so I know that what I, what I know of the outside world is real. And he made that as, well, he thought as an act of reason that that was proving to himself that what he experienced of the outside world, what he saw, what he heard, what he tasted and touched and saw was real because he knew there was a God innately and that God would not deceive him. Well, the problem is that there are those who came immediately after him who are willing to say, okay, we accept your first proof. We, expect, we accept the idea that if I, if I think, therefore I am, so I can prove my own existence to myself, but we're not ex willing to accept your second step, 
that we have an innate idea of God and that God would not deceive us, so therefore we can trust, we can be sure that what we know of the outside world is real. There were philosophers who said, no, that's not legitimate in philosophy. You can't just assume that there is a God. There is no innate idea of God in us. So we're still left with the idea, I exist, but how do I know anything else exists? And so there was a philosopher who followed Descartes, a man named Kant, Immanuel Kant. He said, we can know only the appearances of things. He calls them the phenomena. We can't really know the truth of things, what they really are in themselves, the noumena. He said, no, we can't know that. So already immediately you began to see the detachment of the human mind from reality, the estrangement of the human mind from reality. Now there came a philosopher after him named Fichte. And Fichte said that, well, all human thought has to go through a process. And that process he called a dialectic. And he says, when we think, the way our thoughts progress is this. We, we come up with a statement, like a thesis in our mind about something being true. And then immediately it's challenged by the opposite. It's hot. No, it's cold. Immediately, that's called the antithesis. And then we have to argue that out with a certain amount of violence. Both the thesis gives way, the antithesis gives way, and they produce the synthesis. And there's some kind of an agreement, and the, the, the distress or the opposition, the contradiction has to come to a peaceful resolution by duking it out, as it were, and they come up with a synthesis, which is neither the original thesis nor the antithesis. It's something new. And then you have this new synthesis, which is actually a new thesis. And immediately there's a contradiction. And in the mind, there's a battle between the, the thesis and the antithesis, and the mind battles this out and comes up with a new synthesis, which starts continues the process because the new synthesis becomes a thesis in its own right and begets an argument in its own right. That's how the human mind proceeds, according to Fichte, the dialectic. Well, then there came a philosopher named Hegel. And Hegel said, well, that's all fine. We accept that. But the only reality is mind. The only reality is spirit. Matter is not real. So you see this progressive detachment of the human mind from reality, from the material universe. But the material is not real. It's in my mind. It's a thought in my mind. It's like a category of my mind, like Kant would say. So mind is the only reality. Spirit is the only reality. There's no such thing as matter. And then came along a man named Feuerbach. And he's well named because his name, Ludwig Feuerbach, Feuerbach means the stream of fire. And that's what he was. He died in 1872. And he turned Hegel on his head. He said, we accept the dialectic of conflict and violence and annihilation of a thesis and an antithesis in a new thesis as the key to progress. But this is not in mind. He says, there's no such thing as spirit. Feuerbach says, there is matter, only matter. Matter is the only reality. You have no soul, you're only chemicals, in other words. 
You're just material. There's no spirit in you or anywhere in the universe. Just matter. So he was a materialist. But he kept Fichte's dialectic process. And that meant that within nature there are the forces of conflict which are the key to progress. And it's all by violence and destruction of what is in order to build the new, in order to arrive at something new. That's the dialectical process that he says is present in the material universe. And then came Karl Marx, who again accepted elements of Feuerbach, Hegel, Fichte, Kant, Descartes. And Marx was building on their system in one particular area, and that is human history, and especially with regard to economy. And he applied their ideas to that specific area. And Marx said, yes, there's only the material world, and we are part of it. And yes, that material world must make progress by violence, by destruction, by conflict. And when we apply that to human life, we see that it is in the human standard of life, the economy, that we find this conflict of class warfare. And this is the key to human progress that the haves and the have-nots must necessarily fight it out, work to attack, enslave each other, or attack each other and destroy each other. The bourgeoisie, the haves, the proletariat, the have-nots, the capital, those who own, and the laborer, those who have only their work to give, they don't own anything of themselves, the exploiter and the exploited, Yes, these things Marx taught. He redefined what man is. He said if man has no spirit, he's only matter, he is nothing but an economic animal. That's all he is. Man is an economic animal just looking to live comfortably in this world. Because of the unjust systems imposed by private property, which is like the original sin for Marx, because of the unjust systems that arise from private property, capitalism being the latest, greatest manifestation of that unjust system of private property. So evil is in the world and it must be fought and it must be destroyed. The ultimate objective of history, the ultimate outcome, he says, is going to happen with absolute certainty. It's a matter of the process. And the process is driven by violence. The ultimate outcome of all that violence will be the destruction of private property, the, the ultimate imposition of socialism, so that all private property will be taken away. And when that happens, and everyone has accepted and embraced that there is no more private property, because it's all, it's all in the hands and under the direction and under the control of the Communist Party, as Lenin would say later. So then these wonderful communists who are the Communist Party will turn all of the property over to the entirety of humanity, no private property, and there will be a communist workers paradise where everyone will share everything.
No one will say, this belongs to me, this is mine. This is going to be the dictatorship of the proletariat, it says, which will actually be the communist paradise. Now, it's all mythology. And yet Marx guised it under the, under the appearances of philosophy, but it really is all mythology when you get right down to it. And then I put on the bottom of the page the idea of modernism because it does correspond in many important ways to Marx's mythology and the Gnosticism, which we find involved here in that to say we are God, in that we are the highest manifestations of, of matter, and we are driving history by our violence toward its ultimate resolution in an earthly paradise. So anyway, I want to leave that for a moment because I want to return to this idea of, that we read about yesterday of myth. <coughs> That is to say, Gnosticism as myth, which makes it more powerful and gives it greater vibrancy and greater power than any theology or philosophy could have. I want to return to this because I think it's important for us to see an actual example of Gnostic religion at work in the world today and the kind of thing that the Antichrist is going to be working toward that the entire world will embrace the temptation to say, yes, we are God. I told you about the Gnostic Catholic Church yesterday and talked to you, to you a bit about uh, Aleister Crowley forming the, the Gnostic Mass as its form of worship. I thought I could read you a little bit about the history of the Gnostic Catholic Church, as I said, just a little bit to give you an idea and enable you to see the foundations of modernism at work here, too. Uh, this is uh, a history of the Gnostic Catholic Church by Tau Apirion. We spoke about him yesterday. And this is what he writes. He says, the founder of the Gnostic Church was Jules Benoit Stanislas Duanel du Val-Michel, who lived from 1842 to 1903. Duanel was a librarian. Interesting, isn't it? Interesting, because the founder of masonry in England in 1717 was also a librarian, curiously enough. He, Duanel was a librarian, a Grand Orient Freemason, an antiquarian, and a practicing spiritist. So the occult is at the base of all these things. In his frequent attempts at communication with spirits, he was confronted with a recurring vision of divine femininity under various aspects, and he gradually developed the conviction that his destiny involved his participation in the restoration of the feminine aspect of divinity to its proper place in religion, something that we see very much involved in modernism today. In 1888, while working as archivist for the Library of Orléans, he discovered an original charter dated 1022, which had been written by Canon Stephen of Orléans, a schoolmaster and forerunner of the Cathars who taught Gnostic doctrines. Stephen was burned later the same year for heresy. 
Duanel became fascinated by the drama of the Cathars and their heroic and tragic resistance against the forces of the Catholic Church. He began to study their doctrines and those of their predecessors, the Bogomils of Bulgaria, the Paulicians, the Manichaeans, and the Gnostics. As his studies progressed, he became increasingly convinced that Gnosticism was the true religion behind Freemasonry. One night in 1888, the Eon, remember the Eons, the Eons, the, the servants of the Most High God, appeared, the Eon Jesus appeared to Duandel. So in this system of the occultic Gnosticism, Jesus is merely an Eon, or an Ion, as they would say. And he appeared to Duandel in a vision and charged him with the work of establishing a new church. He spiritually consecrated Duanel as Bishop of Montségur and Primate of the Albigenses. After his vision of the Eon, Jesus, Duanel began attempting to contact Qatar and Gnostic spirits in seances. Now you might say the idea of referring to Jesus Christ who is truly the Son of God, as we know, as merely an eon or a subordinate spirit, is very evil. But this is exactly what is done in Islam, that our Lord Jesus Christ is relegated to the level of merely a prophet. And so the Islamists may think that they are paying, in a sense, a tribute to our Lord, whereas they're, they're actually insulting him by reducing him from denying his divinity and reducing him to the level of a mere human being. That is not honoring our Lord, certainly. It is blasphemy. But this is common throughout the, in all the Gnostic systems. Now, what is important for us to understand with regard to this current manifestation, or shall I say, uh, incarnation of Gnosticism, which we call Mormonism, is the idea that there is a special form of Gnosticism which you find in the Jewish cabal. You know, we, we know the word cabal, it means like a, a tight-knit group of secret individuals who plot together uh, behind the scenes. Well, there is indeed the Kabbalah. There is the Kabbalah that goes back many, that goes back centuries, in fact. And it takes its rise from the Talmud, but also the influences of the, of the Gnostic paganism among the, whom the Jews lived. And so in this introduction to the Gnostic mass by the same Tao Apirion, we read about the influence of this Gnostic system on Judaism and turning it into this very virulent form of paganism. Uh, Tao Apirion, they gave them the self-title Tao and gave themselves special names as you would in a secret society, for example. And so this is this man's code name within the Gnostic ranks. He says the word Gnostic is a Greek word which means pertaining to knowledge. It is often used in reference to a group of early Christian religious systems which developed in the cultural, religious, and philosophical melting pot of the Eastern 
Roman Empire during the first century, primarily in Alexandria, Egypt. You know, you have the Alexandrian Talmud, as you have the Babylonian Talmud, the Jews. Known collectively as Gnosticism, these systems considered heresies by the developing Christian theocracy attempted to fuse to fuse Judaic Christianity with Greek philosophy, Egyptian theurgy, and other elements. Such systems included the teachings of Simon Magnus, Simon Magnus, Simon the Magician, Basilides, Valentinus, Bardesanes, they were all great names in, in, in Gnosticism, and Marcion, as well as those of the groups known as Sethians and Nasanes. The term Gnostic may also be used to refer to other religious systems which, though non-Christian, shared many of the views of the Christian Gnostics. So he brings up the point that Jewish Gnosticism uh, was also involved in this. And he goes on to say of this, in addition to its transmission through literature, the Gnostic current appears to have wound its way through the Middle Ages in several distinct streams of tradition. The Hermetic Gnosis, when you see Hermetism or Hermetic, it refers to magic. It refers to magic. Hermetic means magical, basically. And again, it gets back to the idea that in paganism, Gnosticism being the prime manifestation of this, in current, the most powerful current of it today, you have the philosophical on the one side, which claims to be rational, and you have the other side, which is the mystical, mythological, magical side. And that's where we're looking now, because Mormonism belongs to the mythological, it belongs to the myth, the myth of Gnosticism, or Gnosticism as a mythical system. So the Hermetic Gnosis was incorporated into the allegorical science of alchemy. Egyptian Gnosticism influenced Hebrew, Hekelot, and Merkabah mysticism, which later developed into Kabbalism, that's the Kabbalah. And he goes on and explains that Kabbalism is then a very central part of the Gnostic system. And we might say it is actually the dominant part today. You see these celebrities wearing, sometimes wearing the red cord around their wrist, the left wrist. What does that indicate? What does it mean? For example, for example, if you go back and look at the photographs of Francis receiving the witch's stang. You're familiar with that, right? That in the opening liturgy of the youth synod, he was not carrying a crucifix or a crozier. He was carrying a witch's staff called a stang. You know that. It's very well known that he was doing that. That was given to him by young people he had met with in Rome months before in preparation for the youth synod. And you see the picture. There are two young girls, look like they might be about early 20s, and they're up there with him, and they are actually presenting him with this witch's stang and asking him to carry it to begin the youth synod. And very, very prominent in the picture 
as the girl reaches forward is the red thread bracelet around her wrist. That is the sign of the Jewish cabal. That's a cabalistic ornament to ward off the evil eye. More and more of the individuals are wearing these things to show their adherence to the Jewish Kabbalah, the Jewish Kabbalah. There's a man named Stephen Cohen. Does that ring a bell? Donald Trump's former lawyer who testifies against him now. The man's in jail. While he was called to testify, though, Go look at the pictures. He's wearing the red cord around his wrist. And there were those who made a very special note about that. Like, what message is he sending by this? But so many of the modern celebrities have signed on with this, the Kabbalah. It is a Gnostic form of paganism and probably the most dangerous form because its message is, again, that we are descendants of God. We have the divine spark, and we are part of God. So, um, anyway, I just want that to be made very clear where we're coming from here. Now, the Kabbalists, the Jews, have the scriptures. That's why this is an important connection here. The Jews have the scriptures, okay? But they interpret them very differently, obviously. They have the Old Testament scriptures. And one thing we have in common with the Jews who are really Jews, who believe Jewish, the Jewish religion, and those who are Kabbalists and who interpret the scriptures in a, in a very different way, we have the book of Genesis. And that very, very first statement in Genesis is the, is the, the launching pad for the Gnostic understanding of the world. We know in the very first book of Genesis, God says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Kabbalist says, no. The Kabbalist says that is a corruption of the text. The word Barashit in Hebrew has been corrupted. Someone added without any authority the first syllable, which changes the meaning. So the Kabbalist says, I have to correct the scriptures, beginning with its first word. If you have Barashit, meaning in the beginning God created, then you have the error of standard Judaism and the error of the Christians. But we Kabbalists know, as good Gnostics, that this is not how the scriptures begin. That first syllable does not belong there. It was a corruption. And so instead of saying, in the beginning, God created heaven and earth, it actually says, the head God 
the principal God or the highest God, the head God created heaven and earth. Or the head God made heaven and earth, which indicates the idea that he is only the chief of the gods, not the supreme God. And this is where the capitalists get their jumping off point. They say there was a, a God who created, who made heaven and earth, but he was actually a subordinate God. He was not the supreme God. And there are other gods beside him. This is the starting point of Kabbalistic understanding of the scriptures in the Jewish Kabbalistic tradition. And they begin to develop everything from that point, that opening to the idea that there are other gods. And that is the starting point also of Mormonism. And we'll see that. The most famous discourse of Joseph Smith, the the inventor of Mormonism, the founder of Mormonism, is called the King Follett Sermon, or the King Follett Discourse. King Follett is the name of a man. King Follett was a good friend of Joseph Smith who died a tragic death. He was in a well, and there was a cave-in, and he was crushed to death. And so... Joseph Smith was invited to give the funeral oration for him. Joseph Smith was already receiving death threats. Why did he have enemies? In the sermon, he alludes to that. He alludes in his sermon to the fact that there are those who want to kill him. Well, historically, we understand that Joseph Smith was an occultist, he was raised in a cultist family. He made his living by the practice of the occult, notably by seeking buried, by divining buried treasure for a price. But he was a young man. He is very much au courant with the occultic teachings. While he was in Nauvoo, Illinois, he came across a man who was a devotee of the Jewish Kabbalah, who filled him in on the mysteries, the Gnostic mysteries of the Kabbalah. And we find from that moment on, from the Nauvoo moment, time of his life, his teachings took a strong turn toward Kabbalistic mythology. And that's what we find here in this King Follett sermon. But we also find the claim that those who wanted to kill him, were trying to kill him, wanted to kill him not because he was violating Christian orthodoxy, but because he was breaking his Freemasonic oath to keep secret the mysteries of Masonry. And they saw that he was revealing the secrets of Masonry in this new religion that he was establishing. And so when he died, just a matter of, well, less than three months, less than three months after he gave this sermon, he died violently. He was in prison. The prison was stormed. The mob killed him. 
And as Joseph Smith was being killed, he was giving the Freemasonic distress call for help. But there's every reason to believe that he actually was killed not by Orthodox Christians, but by Masons who saw that he was actually embodying the Masonic mysteries within his new religion. So Aleister Crowley, who sees Gnosticism as, the, as expressing itself in Freemasonry, is not the only one who sees the connection here between Gnosticism and Freemasonry. The question is to see that Gnosticism as it exists in, and is the very starting point, in fact, of the whole mythology of Mormonism. I'm going to read this to you here. This actually comes from the, from the actual website of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. It's called churchofjesuschrist.org. And this presents to us what is called uh, among the classics, the classics in Mormon thought, this King Follett sermon by Joseph Smith, who lived from 1805 to 1844, first president of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The King Follett Sermon, one of the classics of church literature, was given by the prophet Joseph Smith at the April 7, 1844 conference of the church in Nauvoo, Illinois. Some 20,000 saints were assembled. The account of the talk noted that it was the funeral sermon, the funeral sermon for Elder King Follett, a close friend of the prophets who had been killed in an accident on March 9th. Longhand notes of the discourse were made, and here I depart from the text, by four men. Four men were independently taking longhand notes of the discourse. And so the discourse is actually well preserved. It's well accounted for by those who are present. It is recognized by all Mormons as an authentic text of the teaching of Joseph Smith. And that's very important. Because of what we, what we read here. He starts out, Joseph Smith starts out by saying, Beloved saints. He says, basically, I've been called to give this funeral oration as a consolation, to show the consolation of what we believe. He says, I'm here to set forth the things that are true in a way that you can understand. So again, mythology has to be explained, right? I enter fully into the investigation of the subject which is lying before me, but he says, I calculate to edify you with the simple truths from heaven. He says, to do this, I have to go back to the beginning, to the beginning of creation, he says, the very morn of creation. And he's going to give the mind, the purposes and decrees of the great Elohim, who sits in yonder heavens, as he did at the creation of the world, he says, first, we have to understand who this God is. That's what he's going to reveal, who the Mormon God is. He says, unless you understand the character of God, you cannot understand who you are. But he means that in a very specific Gnostic sort of way. What kind of being is God, he asks. He says, my first objection, objective is to find out the character of the only wise and true God and what kind of a being he is. And if I am so fortunate as to be the man to comprehend God 
and explain or convey the principles to your hearts so that the Spirit seals them upon you. Then let every man and woman henceforth sit in silence, put their hands on their mouths, and never lift their hands or voices or say anything against this man of God or the servants of God again. This is his way of telling people, you contradict me, be silent, because I am speaking to you the words of truth, the words of God. He goes on to say even, I will prove that the world is wrong by showing what God is. I am going to inquire after God, for I want you all to know him and to be familiar with him. And if I am bringing you to a knowledge of God, all persecutions against me ought to cease. You will then know that I am his servant, for I speak as one having authority. This is the claim of this man. Going back to the beginning, he says, before the world was, to show what kind of being God is, I'm going to prove to you by the Bible to tell you the designs of God in relation to the human race and why he interferes with the affairs of men. God himself was once as we are now. God himself was once as we are now and is an exalted man and sits enthroned in yonder heavens. This is the great secret, he says, quote, unquote. This is the great secret. There's not a translation. He said these words in English. The great secret, in other words, the great secret knowledge, the gnosis, the gnosis again, what you need to know is that God himself was a man as we are now. He is an exalted man. He's not God become man. He's man become God. And this great God, man become God, who holds this world in its orbit and who upholds all worlds and all things by his power. If you were to see him, you would see him as a man. He would appear exactly as you appear. It would be just like yourselves in all the person, image, his very form as a man. This is what he is by nature. Adam was created in the very fashion, image, and likeness of God. Adam also comes forth from God as a God. He says he's giving this statement as a consolation for those who lose a loved one, like this King Follett, to give the understanding that he is becoming a God. It is the first principle of the gospel to know, for a certainty, the character of God and to know that we may converse with him as one man converses with another, and that he was once a man like us. Yea, that God himself, the Father of us all, dwelt on that earth and earth, the same as Jesus Christ himself did, and I will show it from the Bible. He says, you have got to learn how to be gods yourselves and to be kings and priests to God, that is the Father God, the same as all gods have done before you, namely, by going from one small degree to another and from a small capacity to a great one, from grace to grace, from exaltation to exaltation, until you attain to the resurrection of the dead and are able to dwell in everlasting burnings. 
to dwell in everlasting burnings, he says. This is the goal of becoming the Mormon God, to dwell in everlasting burnings. Peculiar, what? To say the least. Enthroned in everlasting power. This idea that the deification of the human spirit, of the human person, is to be found in everlasting burnings is already a bit of a warning as to where this is leading. Now, these everlasting burnings correspond to the Gnostic pleroma, the Gnostic idea of heaven in which we will reign as gods, right? What is this? What is this exaltation? To inherit the same power, the same glory, and the same exaltation until you arrive at the station of a god. My father worked out his kingdom with fear and trembling. God himself, the father god, he says, had to work out his kingdom with fear and trembling. And I must do the same. And when I get to my kingdom, I shall present it to my father so that he may obtain kingdom upon kingdom, and it will exalt him in glory. He will then take a higher exaltation, and I will take his place, and thereby become exalted myself. So what he's presenting is this idea of <clears throat> that he, Joseph Smith, will go higher and higher in his exaltation until he becomes a god, and he will then work out his own world, and he will present that world then to the Father God, who will be further exalted, and he will take a higher station, vacate that station, and allow the new God, Joseph Smith, to be the God of the world that he himself worked out with fear and trembling, just as the Father God had done before him. Read it. It's right here in black and white. It's an approved Mormon scripture. No one denies it. This is the teaching of Mormonism. This is the teaching of Smith. You have to learn all the principles of exaltation. This is the gnosis. This is a gnosis that you have to learn so that you can be exalted and finally become God. An expression he uses here, after you have passed through the veil. That's part of the Mormon ceremony, actually, to pass through the veil. When you pass through the veil, then you enter a kind of an earthly room that symbolizes entering the pleroma, that's symbolizing entering kind of a Mormon heaven. We know what's on the other side of the veil. There are actually those who have done this ceremony, even part of it, and ushered people through the veil who've gone on and become public about it as to what it was and what a sham and a fraud it was. But they have to pass through the veil. But again, this, this all harkens back to Gnostic teaching. Even the Mormon idea of the mystic marriage, the mystic marriage ceremony that we read about yesterday as being an essential part of Gnosticism, it, it is echoed here in Mormonism. It is a very important part of Mormonism. Now, what ties this all together? I told you about the Jewish Kabbalah and its interpretation of the first word of the Hebrew Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bereshit. Bereshit. Here's what he says. This is what, this is what Joseph Smith says now in his sermon. 
I shall comment on the very first Hebrew word in the Bible. I will make a comment on the very first sentence of the history of creation. In the Bible, Bereshit, I want to analyze the word Bet, in, by, through, and everything else, Rosh and Head, Sheet. Grammatical termination. When the inspired man wrote it, he did not put the Bat there. It's exactly what the capitalists say, exactly what the Jewish capitalists say. An old Jew, without any authority, added that word. He thought it too bad to begin to talk about the head. So it read first, the head one of the gods brought forth the gods. That is the true meaning of the words, opening, beginning the words of Genesis. Bara signifies to bring forth. So if you do not believe it, you do not believe the learned man of God. Ironed. Learned men can teach you no more than what I have told you. Thus the head god brought forth the gods in the grand council. I will transpose and simplify it in English language. O ye lawyers, ye doctors, ye priests who have persecuted me, I want to let you know that the Holy Ghost knows something as well as you do. The head god called together the gods and sat in grand council to bring forth the world. The grand counselors sat at the head in yonder heavens and contemplated the creation of the worlds which were created at that time. When I say doctors and lawyers, I mean the doctors and lawyers of the scriptures. I have done so hitherto without explanation to let the lawyers flutter and everybody laugh at them. Some learned doctors might take a notion to say, the scriptures say thus and so, and we must believe the scriptures. They are not to be altered, but I am going to show you an error in them. So he says, I have not actually revealed this before. I've let these so-called doctors and teachers speak so that people could laugh at them. But now I will speak, he says, and I will tell you, I am going to correct the scriptures, an error in the scriptures, and it's with the first word. I have an old edition of the New Testament in the Latin, Hebrew, German, and Greek languages, I have been reading the German, and I find it to be the most nearly correct translation, and to correspond nearest to the revelations which God has given to me for the last 14 years. So what is he using? He's using an old edition of a German Bible, which is the most correct, he says. That is what corresponds most correctly, because it, it agrees with him. And what it does is, it basically says this, that in the big, the Bible does not say in the beginning God created heaven's earth. It says the head God created the gods and he called them into counsel. And when he created, he didn't actually create out of nothing. That's an error. That's an error, Joseph Smith says. Because the word in Hebrew, he says, means organized. Eternal matter. Matter already existed, he says. Matter is eternal. Gods come. Gods are created. Gods develop. But matter is everlasting in the Mormon concept of things. This is the, the Gnosis. This is the Gnostic system we call or have called or known as Mormonism. Now, the Gnostics are trying, the Mormons are trying to leave the, the term Mormon behind. They want to rebrand themselves. They even want to rebrand themselves as being very, very akin to Catholicism. 
And so they're being very careful how they use those words. But if anybody wants to understand the real nature of Mormonism or the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they really have to go back to the source of Joseph Smith himself who invented this and read what he says. And what he says in the King Follett sermon is the first grand expression or explanation of the fundamental principles and beliefs of the Mormon doctrine. So anybody who approaches you about this, you should have a copy of the King Follett sermon on hand for any time you get a knock on the door from two men in black suits, whether they're with the National Security Administration, whether they're with the Mormon Church, it doesn't matter. You should be sitting down with them, whether they're wearing dark glasses and have wires going to their ears or not. You should be able to point this out to them and say, look, this is what your church really professes, regardless of this rebranding exercise you're going through now. You are being deceived. Let them read the words of their founder, Joseph Smith, and understand for themselves. Much more could be said. Actually, much more has been said. There have been books written on the very subject. The great controversy rages, even among Mormons, about the origins of their beliefs. But these are things that you'll find on the actual official Mormon, Mormon websites, in the official Mormon books, the Mormon literature, that any Mormon can go and read for himself, if he will. But just like with Islam, there are many Islamics who really are not that conversant with the Quran and don't know exactly what it says. Only the fanatics really know the Quran in its Arabic form. So it is with the Mormons. Many of them are ignorant of the origins of their own religion. It is mythological Gnosticism known as the Jewish Kabbalah translated into a form that can be, that is calculated to to convince Christians to embrace Gnosticism. Now look, I want to wrap things up here. I have to wrap things up here, actually. We started out by talking about seeking the will of God, and that's exactly what we have to do. You know, you and I are blessed that we do know the true God. He has revealed himself to us, and we are not God. The true God has revealed himself to us, he is our creator, he is our redeemer, he is a knowing and loving God. He is infinite in being, in goodness, in truth. He is all of his perfections. They are his very being. I am who I am. I am the one who is, is the name that God from the fire in the burning bush gave to Moses. And we have analyzed that teaching, analyzed that name to understand that God is the foundation of all that exists, that he cannot and did not create other gods, not in the sense that he is God, certainly. So seeking and knowing this God's will, the true God's will, is the most important thing for each and every one of us. Because God created us to know and to love. God created us to know him, to love him, and to enjoy him. We are designed to find our happiness in him. 
How do we know the will of God? Well, in the first place, we need to pray. The very step, first step we have to take is to pray. We have to give God our attention and our affection, giving him our minds and our hearts in prayer. And it's not so much what we have to say to him, it's what he has to say to us. So as we pray, we shouldn't think, well, I'm going to deliver an oration to God. But it is that I'm going to address myself to God and ask him to enlighten my mind and to purify my heart. I will pray for wisdom and discernment to know God's will. I will pray that his will be done, to begin with, by me. That's our prayer. The second thing we have to do to know God's will is to trust. This is a hard part with us. We find it very hard to trust God. We want to, especially men, want to think, I have control. And they have a hard time relinquishing that control. If you don't believe me, just try to take an older man's car keys away. It's like you're attacking his very manhood. That's independence. That's his control. Men have a hard time relinquishing that control. But we have to trust. Sacred Scripture tells us, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge God. And he will make your path straight. That's Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. We have to learn to depend and trust on God. In Psalm 9, verse 10, we read about that necessity of trusting God too. And those who know thy name put their trust in thee, for thou art, O Lord, for thou, O Lord, have not forsaken those who seek thee. Number three, part of that trust is a willingness to wait. We have to wait. We have to be patient. We ask God to take care of certain things that are very important and very pressing to us. We have to understand two things. One is that God sees everything from eternity, and he knows what graces he can give and will give, and he knows ultimately who will cooperate with those graces and how everything will turn out. We don't see that. So God sees the outcome of all these things. We have to learn to wait. We also have to learn to wait because when we pray for things, very often what we're praying for involves not only our cooperation with the will of God, but perhaps one or two or five or ten or a hundred other people cooperating with the grace of God. And for God to find even one soul who cooperates with his grace even causes him wonder. We see this in the life of our Lord, who wondered, the gospel says, at the centurion and his faith, who wondered at the Canaanite woman and her humility. Because here you have a soul cooperating with God's grace. It wasn't surprising to him, but he found it wonderful. And so we have to learn to wait for a second reason, that is that we keep God waiting. 
in cooperating with his grace. And very often what we're praying for involves not only our own cooperation, which is difficult enough, but depending on others to cooperate with his grace also. And number four, we have to obey. We have to obey God. So here I am, and I want to know whether God wants me to do this or God wants me to do that. And so I'm asking God for a special guidance to know what I am to do in some particular situation. Should I buy this? Should I buy that? Should I give this away? Should I not give it away? Should I meet this person? Should I propose marriage to this person? Should I enter the seminary? What should I do? How dare I expect to ask God a question like that and approach him with that request when I'm not even doing the things that I know he wants me to do, when I'm already refusing the grace that he's giving me? I mean, if I'm not in the state of grace, what right do I have to approach God and say, God, I need an answer to this question, and I want to do thy will, so teach me, tell me what you want me to do. And the commandments tell us already, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not take God's name in vain, uh, thou shalt not commit adultery, and I'm doing these things, but I think I'm going to convince God that I want to do what his will is in that particular case, even though I've shown that I disregard God's will in so many ways. So the first step is to be obedient to what you know God wants of you in order to expect to know, to learn from him what he wants you to do next. Number five, to know God's will, seek God first. Put him first. More than anything else in life, all the pleasures of the world, all the cares of the world, God should be our greatest love. Psalm 37, 4, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord. He will give you the desires of your heart. When we take our greatest joy, as our Blessed Lady did, to my heart rejoices in God's my Savior. My my soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. When we do that, when we put God first, then we can expect, and every reason to expect, his goodness can respond to that. And if we seek him with all of our hearts, and put him first, as the prophet Jeremiah said in, verse, in chapter 29, then you can say, yes, I seek God's will. And number six, pursue what brings God glory. Give, glorify, give glory to God, glorify the Lord. That's what Our Lady says. Notice, my soul doth magnify the Lord. That's glorifying God. And my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. <clears throat> that is putting God first and finding my greatest joy in him. That's number five. <coughs> and the other is number six of this whole program. And we find it in the life of our Blessed Mother exemplified in her life. All of these things are exemplified in her life. Now we wrap up by, again, talking about the Sacred Heart of Jesus. Okay. The uh, feast day of the Sacred Heart of our Lord actually began under the title of the Feast of the Sacred Hearts of Jesus and Mary. 
Sometimes even the reference was made to the heart, the heart singular of Jesus and Mary, which is very appropriate, as I mentioned before, because when our Lord was first conceived in the womb of Our Lady, he had no heart of his own. His heart developed over time, a matter of weeks. And until our Lord's heart developed and began to beat on its own, then he shared Mary's heart with her. And her heart was her heart and his heart. And so we see the union physically of the heart, as it were, of Mary. And we also understand the spiritual significance of the union of those two hearts and all they represent. Now, St. John Eudes, E-U-D-E-S, St. John Eudes, was a great proponent in the 1600s of this devotion to the Sacred Heart of Jesus. And in the following century, in 1765, a great pope named Clement XIII, who was resisting, resisting the pressure of the Freemasons, the Freemasons, the governments, the prime ministers of France and Spain and Portugal, pressuring and pressuring the pope. Clement XIII, to accede to their wishes of the Masonic agenda. Clement XIII instituted the first feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. They gave us the first mass. It was to the bishops of Poland, actually, that the first feast of the Sacred Heart was given as a, an actual feast day with a mass specifically for that purpose. Recall that you yourselves have received the Sacred Heart every time you received Holy Man, our Lord Jesus Christ in Holy Communion at Mass. You've received his Sacred Heart. He's placed his Sacred Heart within you. And yet our Lord says that that heart is re rewarded with so much forgetfulness, negligence, and contempt, despite his great love. This is how we reward the love of that Sacred Heart by forgetfulness, negligence, and contempt. And there are three separate things. Forgetfulness is simply being unmindful. Negligence is deliberately being unmindful, making a decision to ignore. And contempt is being aware and detesting and attacking and insulting the heart of Jesus. All three of these things our Lord is subjected to in his sacred heart. Well, I ask you to please, as gentlemen, as Catholic gentlemen, as Catholic gentlemen warriors, as knights of this day, as knights of the church in this day and age, to take this as your sacred duty to serve God in every way you can, to pray to God and ask him what is his will for you, so that when he calls you for judgment, you're not confronted with all of the good that you failed to do and all of the evils that happened because of those failings. Pray to God that you may see these things and understand what your duty is as a Catholic in the church and in the world today, that you have to be in the world, but not of the world. You're rather of Christ 
you see that all of this error is an attack on the Blessed Trinity itself. The fact that there are three divine persons, one God, that's the ultimate attack of all of these errors of Gnosticism. That is what our, our goal should be, to uphold the, the faith and the hope and the love for that triune God we know as the Blessed Trinity. There should be our allegiance. There should be our concern. Our concern should be the concerns of God, the thoughts of God, the will of God. And the will of God is not the death of the sinner, but that he can be converted and live. What are you doing about that? What am I doing about that? That's what we have to ask ourselves. What are we doing about that? So I ask you to please take to, take to heart that if you do nothing else but sincerely ask God's guidance in this, then I would say the retreat was of accomplished its purpose. I want you to have an increase of faith and hope and love for God in your own hearts, but I want you not to stop that there and bottle that up within you. I want you to actually communicate that faith and hope and love to others too. <laughs> Ask God how he wants you to do that. He will answer you. <laughs>